four teaching friends from across the country. Who've discovered that if you don't laugh, you cry and lose sight of your why. I'm Retta. I'm Deanne. I'm Tracy. And I'm Kathy. And we teach so hard. You know what's hard? Figuring out how to change attitudes in a culturally responsive classroom. Welcome to part three of our four-part series. Welcome to the third episode of our four-part series on fostering a culturally responsive classroom. Each episode focuses on one aspect of creating your culturally responsive classroom. And today, we're talking about how culturally responsive teaching actually changes the attitudes of kids and teachers towards school and learning. The more I read about culturally responsive teaching, the more I see these common threads. Kids feel safe and respected in class. Kids are finding motivation in learning. Attitudes begin to change around school and learning. And kids have a choice in the way they respond. Some of the characteristics of um, culturally responsive, responsive teaching are that there's a positive perspective for both parents and families, uh, communication of high expectations, learning within the con- context of culture. I can't speak today. Um, <laughs> instruction is student center that we always talk about, culturally mediated instruction. It helps to reshape the curriculum and the teacher moves into the role of facilitator rather than the bearer of knowledge. (laughs) So important. I love that last one. I think it's my favorite. Yes. So so ladies, um, for our listeners out there, if you want to hear more about each of those, make sure that you go to um, our first episode in this series. Um, Let's see, that would be episode 66 uh, of the podcast, because you'll hear more information about each of those. So let's talk about this. While we're working on all this good stuff that we just outlined um, in our culturally responsive classrooms, what are some of the practices that can change attitudes about teaching and learning? Let's talk about that. Well, one of the things that I, I think all kids love are games. Um, yes, and I know everyone loves games. <laughs> yes, they do. I just feel like Rob, the name Robert Marzano has, has become a four-letter word. <laughs> but yeah. that's one of his, that is one of his um, big, um, learn, God, well, I can't talk tonight either. <laughs> one of his behaviors that um, are successful that he's labeled as being successful in a classroom is when you can make learning into a game. You know, most families do play games and I don't mean like the, the video games, although I know most families do those. Um, But every culture has certain games that are unique to its members. So it's easy to incorporate game playing into your teaching practices. So let's, let's chat about what are some of the ways that we can bring game playing into our classrooms? Well, I just, (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me, I'm all choked up over this. I'll yeah, another one. 
Well, we used to do it as a re- um, it, well, we did a lot of game playing in my classroom, but but we had a review game every week that was pretty legendary, actually. And mm-hmm. it was called Are You Are You a Smart Fourth Grader? And it was based on our, the TV show Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, if you remember. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So every Friday, I just had this real simple PowerPoint slide um, show. And I had someone playing the boom box with a great song called It Takes All Kinds of People just to get a subliminal message going in their head. And um, I had a scorekeeper. And kids could earn rainbow dollars, which was our classroom currency, by getting um, review questions from the week correct. Mm. And everybody had a little, it was real low tech. They had little wipe off uh, whiteboards. Um, Actually, it was, yeah, they did have whiteboards. But some years, we just had a piece of cardstock that was laminated. You use, you know, wipe off markers um, and an old sock to, to wipe it. And what would happen is the master of ceremonies would ask the question that came up on the slide. And Everyone would have, oh, 30 seconds or so while the song played to write their answers down. And then mm-hmm. uh, when the music stopped, they'd hold up their signs. I'd say, show me, or the, the person leading it would say, show me. And they'd pick one. And if it was the correct answer, then they won a rainbow dollar. And if, let's say, 10 people had the correct answer, then the treasurer would go around the room and hand out a rainbow dollar to each person. Um, and it was part of our class culture for years, even after the TV show failed, it was just what we do here, <laughs> yeah. we celebrate what we've learned and it got us ready for tests. So we loved it. Did I ever tell you, Retta, that one of my students, this years ago, he must be in college or beyond by now, wrote a question for, you. Uh, are you smarter than a fifth grader? And his question was selected no. for the show. Wow. And so, so cool. Yeah. And so his classroom teacher, being me, won like a thousand dollars to Best wow. Buy. Yeah. And so for our classroom, and I think I at that time, again, this was so many years ago, I bought like a projector and I bought a speaker, nice. like things that I would use with the class because he had written his I don't remember what the question was. He wrote something about prime numbers or a square number and um it was chosen for oh, the show. Amazing. That's a that is that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it is awesome. I think. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) Well, one of my favorite ways to use games, I think that in the math classroom, games are a way to build number sense and have kids practice skills. And but but more even more important than that, it's it's the number sense they build. It builds so much number sense, and I I think about like the games my grandmother, the fourth grade teacher extraordinaire who taught for 45 years, you know, started in a one room schoolhouse and retired, you know, um, in the eighties. Um, I look at her and the games she played with me, you know, as a child now, as a teacher, I look at those games and Holy cats, they are, they built my number sense. They totally, they were card games. They were, dominoes and the strategy she taught me so much number sense it's one of my favorite ways to teach math yeah that's that's fun it really makes it so much more fun yes we would use games mostly for studying for tests and 
when I would have, sometimes the kids would make up games and we would do Wheel of Fortune and um, scoot games are also a lot of fun. What kind of mm-hmm. games? Scoot? Scoot games. Scoot, yes. Yeah, oh, my kids love scoot. Yeah, they do. And then sometimes, you know, for games, I would just ask questions and um, they would answer them and they would be on teams. And the team that won, maybe I would give them like a few extra points on the test or something. Mm-hmm. They just they just love that. They do like working in teams too. I have um, yes. buzzers in my room. You know, it was like a four pack on Amazon. They all make a different sound, but they work mm-hmm. in teams and I'll post a question. I don't know in, in any content area, but they have to work together so that they all agree on the answer. So it can't just be one yeah. student. Um, and then they press the buzzer and, you know, it gives that game show kind of atmosphere. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, and then my mom, because she saves everything <laughs> from when I was younger, I found in her garage quite a few years ago now, it's called Toss Across. Do you guys remember this? It's a, yes. it's a tic-tac-toe uh, beanbag throwing yeah. game. Yeah. Right? And so there really is no strategy to the game because it's kind of like wherever it hits, you never know really what it's going to turn into. But the kids, <laughs> they break into two teams and I, I use it for review also. Um, I'll ask a question, and then if they answer que- if they answer the question correctly, they get to throw the beanbag. And oh, that's cool. More often than not, no one ever wins because it's so hard to get the the little uh, spinny things to turn to an X yeah. or an O. But they yeah. like, pull that out. I mean, they're cheering. They're so excited, and mm-hmm. there is something about a game that gets kids really uh, motivated. It really does. As a way to review for me. Game playing is fun. And if if the game playing is about what they're learning, they start to think that learning is fun. And they're doing it in school. So school is fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I think I I probably mentioned this before, but like at the end of the year, you know, to just review, I'd have the kids work in collaborative groups and they'd each make a game about a different part of history. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Like the last week of school, they pass their game. They play their game. Then they pass it on and everybody would get to try everybody else's game. Mm-hmm. And it's great for the end of the year because it takes some time to make it and, you know, it's makes it for... One of the things that, you know, the trends, and I've, I've seen them all over TPT, I've done some in my own room, are the escape room games. And I love those because the whole class works together. Yes. Um, and they're a great way to review um, different kinds of skills. Um, but they're so much fun. And the kids love them. They, they love like them. Fun. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of those things on Facebook for studying biology and stuff, and they have like operations and everything. They look, <laughs> yeah. they look marvelous. Yes. <laughs> they really fun. Tracy, you were talking so, about math games. Um, yeah. Have, have you played BizBuzz? Gosh, I'm not sure. <laughs> so so BizBuzz... I don't know, when I was getting my credential, you know, back in the 80s, um, they had yeah. us always like come up with what they called sponge activities, right? Yeah. Where an activity that would take maybe five or 10 minutes in case you had time um, in your classroom. And so BizBuzz, everyone stands in a circle and they count off like one, two, three, four. But every time you hit a multiple of five, you have to say biz. And every time you hit a multiple of seven, it's buzz. So they have to really okay. listen. So it's like one, two, three, four. Biz, six, buzz, eight, nine, biz. (laughs) And you just go around, but it, you know, it's reinforcing their math facts. It's getting them to predict when is it biz buzz? Because it's, you know, seven times five, a multiple of seven times five. And anyway, it's a a game they beg to play. (laughs) Counting back and making it factors. 
Ooh, yes. Imagine like starting like an, with a power number like 48, right? Which has tons of factors. Yep. And you count back 48, 47, 46. And every time you hit a factor, you could do something like that too. As a teacher, I would have to make a little cheat sheet so I could keep track. <laughs> yes. I would yes. too. <laughs> it would be more challenging, but that could be like the, the biz buzz one, 201, you know? Right. I mean, that 101. Yeah, absolutely. Super fun. I, I don't know if this is a game or not really, but my partner who taught math, he would do um, mental math and he would come up with these huge, you know, examples and the kids would have to make them up and, you know, come up with the answers in their head. In yeah. their heads, and they loved it. They loved it. Well, and sometimes what's really fun is, and this is just an easy board game, is put the is put an um, put an answer on the board and ask them what is the question. Oh yes, yes, oh, we'd love doing that. Around and with, and with math, you know, the the possibilities are endless. So it's it's a lot of fun to see how creative and how how um, rigorous they'll get. How, you know, you'll see kids who will be surface level and you'll see kids really dive in. So let's talk about what are some, another, what's another way to change attitudes? Um, let's talk about the use of improvisation. And I know that we've all done this in one way, shape or another. So let's talk about that. How do you use improvisation in your classroom? Improvisation um, is an effective way to get students to try on character traits from fiction or history or even current events um, filtered with their own cultural background. Um, I've used improvisation, maybe role-playing too, when I uh, when we were studying Egypt and the kids had to um, search for information on King Tut and possibly who might have killed him. So after they did that... Um, you know, they found the characters that might have killed them and they took on their roles when we did a trial. And that was, oh, they, they, they must loved, have loved that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fun. Dinner theaters. Yeah. Say fun. that again. It's yeah. like those dinner theaters. Yeah. 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 It was, it was a good one. Deanne, and, did you your know, kids they came dress up? Oh, yeah. I was going to ask yeah, that. Yeah. So I was just going to say, yeah, they did. Yep. They did. And it was really good. And I think, I believe I was the judge most of the time, but it, they, it was really fun. Here comes the judge. Here <laughs> comes the judge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's also fun, you know, when you have characters either in books or in history also to put them in the hot seat, right? So they become, oh. they speak oh, as yeah. first person and someone yes. else can yeah. interview them or ask questions of them, but it gets the kids to take on their perspective and other points of view. Oh, yeah. I like that to move cards. One when of my favorite like ways to use improvisation is um, with poetry. Um, so I give kids poems to read and we we have text set that we use and I ask uh, ask them to choose one and I've done this numerous times and it turns into actually chore choreographed pieces but I'm asking them to move their body to interpret the poem Ooh. and so they have to come up as a group with choreography that would be a group interpretation of the meaning of the poem so how are you going to move your body on this line and why are you going to move your body that way and so that by the time they're done, they actually come across, they actually have a choreographed poem that they have um, 
finished. And it's a really cool way to interpret literature and to get them to be really thinking about the language and how would my body stand here as opposed to how does it stand here when the poet's words are softer or the mood has changed. Um, it's really powerful. Wow. Tracy, do you use specific poems? Of, of that meme that, you know, where the kid says, could I answer an interpretive dance? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, they do. Yes. They do, but they are. I do have specific poems I've 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 used with them, um, and I actually years ago did a whole poetry informants that was all student choreographed. Um, that was uh, it was bliss. It was so much fun, um, and I tracked. It was funny because I I tracked. I wanted to know. I was looking to see if it would impact how that type of approach would impact students' reading comprehension. And I was looking at explicit versus implicit responses. And I actually saw an increase in um, kids' implicit responses to comprehension questions afterwards. So it was my... It was my Galileo Leadership Academy action research, but it was very and the big and the kids that it impacted the most were my EL and my special education kids. Ah, yes, Tracy, Beautiful. I want to be in your classroom. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It was a lot of fun. I love improv. Oh, that's great. So I make these little cards, and um, there's some blank ones where you can add situations, you know, they're from the lesson focus. Generally, I'd use them with literature. So you'd have a situation that came up in, in a chapter. And another card would be a series of moods, different moods you could be in. Another card would be a time or a place from the book, and another one of the characters. And so kids would just pick a situation card, a character card, a mood card, a time or place card, and they'd have to put them together and then in groups act out what those cards are showing. So they have oh, to, Oh, that's know, fun. I know. That's great. And, you know, and it could be a sad situation like in Hatchet where um, – what's the, who's the main character? Oh, my gosh. I forgot his Ryan. name. Brian, Brian, yeah, Brian. So Brian overhears his parents talking about the uh, the divorce, right? And what if the mood card is jubilant? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, yeah, instead you of the way he really felt, it, it really stretches the imagination, stretches stretches their interpretation. Yeah, mm. that's a oh, cool that, idea. That is, that's I very like that. fun. I'll come to your class too, and here's <laughs> Kathy too, of course. <laughs> Well, let's talk about one more way to change attitudes. Um, And using increased social interaction is a really great way to do this. And this has been my passion lately, this whole discourse and conversation clubs and and all of that. Um, Let's talk about some of the ways that we use this practice to change our students' attitudes. So humans naturally are interactive creatures. Kids need to talk. When you encourage them to share information and responses, to plan and execute their PBL projects together, learning magic happens. Give them what my students and I always called conversational opportunities as often as your own culture and sanity will allow you to do that. <laughs> yes. 
And I know it won't always allow it, but maybe, you know, just like bite your tongue and clasp your hands together. Let go of the reins Mm -hmm. whenever the coast is clear ahead and let your students take over. You're always there. You can walk around, bring the focus back to the, you know, the learning standard or piece of the lesson that you want to reinforce or drop it casually into their conversation. But just give them a chance to be human and interact a little bit more. That's excellent. I I really like that. Tracy, I bet your conversation clubs definitely do that, don't they? Uh, Yeah, they do. And I was just thinking about this because I was working with a pre-student teacher last week and she was, um, this was someone that was actually in my university class um, that I taught this past fall. And she was noticing how much student conversation goes on, how much turn and talk, how much they're working in small groups, how much they're interacting with each other and not so much with me. And that was kind of like, oh, yay. Yeah, for an outside (laughs) person to observe that. That's really awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was, it's um, the conversation clubs do, that does happen. And it's become a way that we organize ourselves almost in every subject now, not just the way I had intended it, you know, when I began it. Um, so they are, they are meeting, whether it's in a chalk talk thing or they're sitting on the carpet and they're talking about a math story problem that's on the board, you know, um, it's across the board now. Great. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that is great. Well, years ago, Socrates would do that with his students. Well, no, that's, I guess that's different. He would walk no, with them and talk with them and, and teach them, from, right? I guess. Yeah. So that was, yeah. that was, that's a great way to learn too. Yeah. That's interesting you say that, Dan, because my daughter, who is a freshman in high school, one of her favorite days every week in her English class is because they have a Socratic seminar. Yeah. And she has just loved that, like being able to discuss things that aren't just silly, (laughs) you know, because I mean, there are silly (laughs) kids in her class, too. But she says it really gets them all focused and uh, goes deeper into whatever the topic is. And they prepare for it. Like they have to be prepared. They take turns who who's going to be the group that leads the Socratic seminar each week. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. And don't they have don't they have another group like watching the interactions too? Yes. And then do they discuss that? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's the great. Inner circle and the outer circle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go to let's transition real quick before we run out of time because this last one, guys, it's fun. We got to talk about it. What are some ways that you've used storytelling to change attitudes. Let's transition to that because I know we all have stories about how we've used storytelling. Um, It's a fun approach to use with kids. Well, to me, good storytelling 
lead you into some of the best lessons you'll ever teach, sometimes even unintentionally. You know, telling a little known story that you know about a historical figure or a friend who is just like that fictional character, or they especially love hearing about ourselves when we talk about what we were like at their age. And it hooks your Mm -hmm. audience and just holds them in the palm of your hand as their brains open up to receive new knowledge and will encourage them to share some of their own stories, which is what we want. Um, I know that, that I had a, I think seventh grade teacher. When did they do world? No, ancient history. Is that sixth grade? Uh, it depends grade? upon the school system where, where I taught it was, um, it's, it's sixth grade. Yeah. Well, I remember having a teacher in junior high, so I'm not sure what grade it was in, but he would tell these stories about all of the torture, um, in medieval times <laughs> and he yeah, would hook us like every week. We're like, I what's he going to tell exactly. us? And he would describe, <laughs> describe it. I mean, it was so gross, but it just made us want to learn more, <laughs> which I loved. Um, but you know, that too, is what catches you. Yes. All storytelling doesn't necessarily have to be oral, right? You can tell your own story, mm-hmm. finish the lesson and then send mm-hmm. your kids back to their places, wanting to write their own story that, that applies in their own journal or interactive notebook. Yep. What are some ways that all of you have um, used storytelling in your classrooms? Kathy, mine is similar to what you, you know, what you were saying is that um, when I was teaching about uh, the Mayas and stuff, what really hooks them is the gore, you yeah. know, <laughs> grabbing, taking the heart out of the body and, you know, <laughs> rolling it down the head, the, um, these huge, the steps, <laughs> you know, and, and, oh my God. And that's what they remember. That is what they remember. <laughs> I think I remember hearing about that too, um, with the, is it with the Aztecs when I went to visit Chichen Itza? And yeah. they were they were talking they that, about yeah. the brutality, like of yeah. the games they played and things too. Yes, yeah, yeah. Puck to puck. Yeah, it's a, it's like a soccer game where they have to like um get this like it's hard rubber ball and has to has to go through this little hole that's up really high. Uh-huh. And a lot of times the people I always get it mixed up, but the people that um win the game are sacrificed because the sacrifice was supposed to be something really wonderful that everybody wanted to do because you would be with the gods. It was really <laughs> still play a version of that game in Mexico. They still do. I've I've read about it. They still play a version of that game in Mexico. Oh my. they do. Huh? Where somebody gets to be sacrificed? I hope not. <laughs> it's a modern day version of it. Okay. Yeah. Well, my, my example of using storytelling, I have a, a close friend of mine who's actually a, 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 a storyteller and had opened up a group, helped find a group in um, Tucson, Arizona called Tellers of Tales. And she and I worked extensively with kids, um, getting them to storytell. And I, at the time, was a second grade teacher, but this could work for any grade. And we did a, a, this is a my family kind of unit. And kids took a family story and they learned how to tell it. And we had a storytelling festival in our classroom. How fun! Um, it was. And they, they learned to tell their family story. And it's a great way to honor students' voices, yes. students' cultures, mm. Um who they are, who their what their identities are. Um, it's a fabulous thing to do. And I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, research says that 
storytelling, anything that's oral is going to send your writing just through the charts. And, and what they did with writing was remarkable because they had all of that practice mm. t- telling it. Right. If you can say it, you can write it. I love it. Well, my storytelling always started with my own stories. I tell about my kids and my family and, and some random great uncle or great aunt. It was kind of like, you know, talking to Opie, they're fishing and he's telling him a story about, you know, something Aunt B did 20 years ago or whatever. And I would tell my kids stories like that and then, and then encourage them to add their own, to tell, mm-hmm. you know, did anything like that ever happen in your family or, you know, right. you know? well, that's and what I love about Patricia Polacco books. Yes. Because yeah. mm-hmm. yes. it's all based on stories from her life. And I mean, it's whenever I share the, the back part with the kids or the, you know, the book jacket part that says where that story came from. And I keep talking uh-huh. about that, that came from her experiences, her own life or her grandmothers or her daughters. And, um, and then the kids love to look for the little red-haired girl in the pictures, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, ladies, we are almost out of time. So let's transition. What is your number one tip for changing attitudes in your culturally responsive classroom? What What would you say to our listeners? Everything you do should be fun. Make sure that all the other teachers and half of the community is accusing you of being all glitter and fluff and nonsense. Because the kids are having such a raucous good time in your classroom. That's how you change the attitudes because learning is supposed to feel good and it's supposed to be fun. So play games, tell your stories, listen to their stories, put a smile on your face no matter how you're feeling when you walk in the door and just have fun every day. <laughs> I want to be in your class too, Rada. Um, yeah. too. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I, I tell kids not everything can be fun, but you know, I think it's the way we approach how we're teaching. And if we give them lots of different types of experiences. So be it with, you know, oral storytelling or with acting things out or, you know, mm-hmm. making it a game. Like we're, we're activating that part of learning that they're so excited about. It's going to tap into the different types of learners we have in our classroom. And if kids can see you as the teacher are enjoying learning and wanting to learn more, then they pick mm-hmm. up on that and they want to do the same. Can oh, I just add one thing to what you just said, Kathy? Yeah. One of the things, no, not everything can be fun. So the things that weren't fun, like this one particular math program that we had to suffer through, <laughs> I just made fun of it all the time with the kids and we were always laughing. So it's like, <laughs> oh, look what they want us to do now. Okay. We laugh at it a little bit. And then I say, well, I guess we're going to have to do it or we're in trouble here. So, you know, we'd laughingly go through the motions and we would do it and, and we'd accomplish the objective. There you go. Yep. Yep. I think I think my number one tip um, is to put yourself in the child's shoes. I I like to say that I speak fifth grade boy. <laughs> fifth grade boy. They're tough. Is a unique. It's a unique language. Yeah. You yes. know, fifth grade girls, they still like you. They like your earrings. They check out your lips. <laughs> You know, like, they're looking yeah. out your shoes. 
for the most part, you're still cool to fifth grade girls until like March or so of fifth grade. And then they've got bigger fish to fry because the hormones settle in. But (laughs) fifth grade boy is something special. (laughs) So I find myself a lot of times when I'm planning, you know, lesson planning and and planning learning um, activities for my kids, I think about my fifth grade boy. And I think, you know, is this in their language? How am I going to translate this? Because it is a special language. (laughs) I speak your language. (laughs) How about you, Leanne? Ladies, I don't have much to add to this because what what all of you said is just wonderful. Um, I I do really like um, also as Reda said to like you know be yourself. You know if if you're not thrilled with something, let them know it, and it, I think it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. But um, I I definitely agree with what the rest what you what everybody said about everything else. So. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> this is all we have time for today. We hope you've enjoyed our third episode in our Fostering a Culturally Responsive Classroom series as much as we have. Be sure to check out our blogs in the show notes. And if you like what you hear, give us a shout out. Leave a comment. Give us five stars on your listening platform. And be sure to join us next week. I'm so excited about next week. Books make me so happy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's one of our book talk weeks, and we're going to be talking about books with the theme of hope because you have high hopes for your students and your students need those high hopes and because you teach so hard. Catch you next time.